Thank you, Aaron. I think two things happened there. I think one, he gave voice to something that probably a lot of you guys experienced, which is maybe some similar conversations that you may have had with family members or friends as well about not taking scripture seriously. Um, and two, it, it kind of uncovers the fact that whenever you stand up for um, inclusivity or an oppressed group, a scapegoated group, that you tend to start to carry a little of their burden. You start to experience some of the same consequences that they experience in life. And that is part of us carrying one another's cross and bearing one another's burden. So thank you, Aaron, for sharing. Um, I do want to talk just a little bit about this. This is our very classy baptistry. What do you think? We ordered it in green specifically to honor Michigan State since they wrecked all of our brackets. So, <laughs> I'm just kidding, we did not order it for that. But uh, um, we've got six people being baptized next week so far. So I just want to extend that welcome that if anyone's thinking about it, but you've been a little bit nervous and you wanted to know what it would look like, this is what it looks like. You won't be alone. I'd be happy to talk to you this week about being baptized. So you guys are going to have to give me a little extra grace this week. I've been, I've been fairly sick, so I feel pretty weak up here and a little shaky. So um, just uh, let me breathe here for a minute. I, um, I'll start with a, a story that I read in eighth grade English. So I read a story called The Lottery from, by Shirley Jackson. It sounds like some of you guys had to read it too. Yeah, public school, required reading. For those of you guys who haven't read it or maybe need a refresher, it was a pretty simple plot. It was published in the New Yorker in 1948. And it's a, a story about a village of about 300 people. And it takes place on a morning when all 300 of those people are gathered in the town square. And they're there for a lottery. And all the kids are running around and they're playing and the boys are gathering stones and collecting them into big piles. And the adults are standing around talking. They're like, ah, I just wish this lottery would be over already so we can just go back to work and get back to business as usual. And then the head of the lottery comes up to begin the ritual. And he calls for one member from every household to come up. And so they do. And they come up and they draw a slip of paper from an old tattered wooden box. And so all of them take their piece of paper and they go back to their families and they open it up and everyone's is blank except for one person. And they've got a big dark circle drawn on theirs. And so it was given to a man whose name I don't remember. And so he's asked to go back up front with his family. It's his wife, Tessie, and his three daughters. And he places that piece of paper with the dot on it in there and they put another four sheets of blank paper into the box and then the five of them have to draw. And the person who comes up with the black dot is the wife and mother, Tessie. And after she draws it, she starts protesting that the lottery wasn't fair, that her husband didn't have a chance to draw the thing that he wanted to draw and that they pushed him. But as she's protesting, the villagers, including her family, start to gather around her in a giant circle and they pick up the stones that the children had gathered and they come at her. And the first person to pick up a stone, we're told, was named Dixie Delacroix, right? And there's some symbolism going on here. Delacroix means of the cross in French. And the story tells us that the villagers, they ba um, bastardized her name. They would pronounce it Delacroix, right? Dixie Delacroix. So symbolically here, we have a distorted woman of the cross being the first one to go and pick up one of those stones. And the others follow her, and then they, they stone the woman to death. 
So I reread that story this week, but I have to admit, most of the details had actually stuck with me 25 years later, because when I read that when I was 13, I just remember being just struck by, like almost traumatized by the sheer utter violence of it and the pointless violence of it all, which was the reason that the author said that she wrote it. She said she did it to expose the pointless violence and the inhumanity in our own lives. And she received hundreds and hundreds of hate letters after she wrote this story. So she got some from, from one group of people who were basically just mad that she wrote something so horrible right after World War II when the country was in, you know, like they needed to be cheered up, not brought down. And then she had a group of people who were upset because the story exposed the futility of something that we all participate in from time to time. It exposed the futility and the harm of scapegoating. Now, most of us know what scapegoating is. Right? It's when a person or a group of people is blamed for the wrongdoings of others. And then that person is silenced. Either they're silenced within the group, like maybe within a work group, you might experience that. They might be expunged from a group, a group of friends. In more extreme cases, they might be killed or jailed or exiled or fired. And scapegoating is something that takes place in anxious systems. Right? It can happen in any anxious system, large or small. It can happen in a romantic relationship, in an anxious family system, in a workplace, on the playground, in church, in a nation. Right? It happens anywhere that there are humans on scales large and small. And so what happens is the system gets anxious and vulnerable. And so a person or a group of people is singled out for being different. And that difference can be anything that makes that person stand apart, right? It can be race, it can be sexual orientation, it could be stuttering, a lisp, it could be uncool hair, it could be someone who has an accent or is differently abled, it can be anything. And then what happens is an accusation is made against that person or those people, and it's usually a false accusation, and then a mob starts to form around that accusation. Actually, oftentimes, the accusation is more reflective of the person making it, right? It's something that is going on inside of them that they are then projecting onto the scapegoat. So there's gossip, and mob mentality starts to take hold. And the thing about a mob is that you're able to disperse responsibility so that it's more difficult to hold individuals accountable, Right? Mobs, they mask the behavior, the bad behavior of individuals who can feel bolstered to speak against the scapegoat because everyone else is doing it. Right? It's hard to take, be held accountable for something if everybody is doing it. So the fear of the scapegoat then escalates, and it's soon agreed by this mob that for the sake of the peace of the group, the scapegoat has to go. Right? It's better that one person or a few people should suffer than that we should all suffer, and it's thought that this is for the good of everyone. And the thing about scapegoating is it actually works. Sociologically, it works. It actually brings peace and unity to an anxious group of people for a short time. And if a group gets away with it, then a myth is created to sort of dispel the, group, uh, the guilt that the group feels about what happened. And it's a myth that tells a story about why what happened had to happen, right? It's about what happened, not what I took part in. What happened had to happen. So this weekend, Rachel and I, we watched a movie that was recommended to us actually by Brandon Carruth, who I don't think is here this morning. It's called Good Night and Good Luck. 
and it gave a really good example of scapegoating in our own, our own country. So have any of you guys seen that one? I saw a few nods. It was like a George Clooney film. It's talking about McCarthyism in the early 1950s. So in the early 1950s, this is my history geek coming out, right? we had a lot of anxiety about the Soviet Union and about communism in our country. So this was just after World War II and the Soviet bloc had formed, like Russia had taken over Eastern Europe. China became communist in 1949. We were fighting a proxy war with Russia and China in Korea in 1950. And so we had all of this anxiety, this sort of existential threat. It was also a threat of ideas. It was sort of this, how do you run a culture? Is it democracy? Is it communism? And as we felt anxious and vulnerable there at the beginning of the Cold War, that created a climate where Senator Joe McCarthy was able to create a scapegoat and accuse people of something that wasn't actually happening. Right? So he went up in a, in a famous speech and he had a, a closed list, he said, of 200 and some people who were known communists, who had infiltrated the government and were working to overthrow the American government. And that created the Red Scare, and suddenly there were people who were innocent being accused of being communist and losing their jobs, and it was a terrible time in American history. And the thing about scapegoating is it actually ultimately makes a group unsafe because it doesn't address the source of the underlying anxiety. So in the case of McCarthyism, right, we had a fear of being attacked, a fear that democracy was at stake. And it's easier to exploit these fears and to blame all of our woes on a small group of people, because then it feels controllable, right? Because what we want to do is we want to get rid of our anxiety, but sometimes there are things that cannot be controlled, especially on a large scale. And if we can, like, it's our human tendency to try and find a few people to blame it on, because then we can say, okay, well, if I can just get rid of a few people, if I can get rid of them, this will all be gone, the threat will be gone, and it eases our anxiety. It makes us feel like we can control it. But here's the thing, in systems where scapegoating is employed by groups to relieve anxiety, there will always need to be a new scapegoat. There will always need to be a new scapegoat. And it might take some time for that scapegoat to emerge, but it will. And it's an unhealthy way of dealing with unwanted feelings and with sources of conflict and tension. And it's one of those things where we have to learn to talk about conflict and tension and shame and uncomfortable feelings and to live with some degree of tension without it threatening our sense of belonging in a group. So if we take it from a big scale down to a smaller scale, unhealthy family systems frequently produce scapegoats. Right? When you hear someone spoken of as a black sheep of the family, that's very often what is going on. And maybe some of you are the black sheep of your family in which case you've probably been carrying around a lot of the unspoken shame and fear of your family for a long time. Because the scapegoat gets blamed for all of the conflict and all of the ills, and then they carry the projected shame, the projected fear of their family members. And I can tell you from experience, not from my family system, but from a church system, that the, the experience of carrying projected shame is a heavy load. So the idea of the scapegoat finds its origins in the Bible. Right? There's a somewhat strange story in the Old Testament, in the book of Leviticus. Um, and in that story, we see the high priest of the Hebrews. His name is Aaron. 
he brings two goats to the tabernacle each year. And then he casts lots to determine which goat is going to die and which goat is going to be released out into the wilderness. Right? So one goat will die. The other, it says, will actually be sacrificed to the god Azazel, which is the evil god spirit of the wilderness, except it won't be killed. It will be released to Azazel. So Aaron, the high priest, what he would do is kill that one goat, and then the second goat that is the scapegoat, he would lay both of his hands on it, and he would confess the sins and the shame of his people for the last year. And the goat then, this innocent animal, symbolically carried all of their evil and their shame and then is exiled into the wilderness. Now, this might sound a little bit primitive, but we have to remember that in order to connect with us, God sometimes adopts things that he didn't invent. Right? And God does that with animal sacrifice in the Old Testament. Humans were offering sacrifices long before God called Abram. And God adopts the practice of sacrifice to adapt it, to contain it, and eventually to end it. We notice that as soon as God adopts the scapegoat practice, he adapts it, right? He ritualizes it. He ritualizes it, much like in the lottery where they ritualize the violence to one person every year. God says, okay, you feel like you need a scapegoat? Scapegoats are a human tendency for keeping social order? Well, okay, once a year, under these supervised conditions, here's how you will do it. And to begin with, the victim will be a goat. It's not going to be a person. It's not going to be one of your children. It's not going to be a minority group. It will be a goat. And the way the ritual is practiced in Leviticus, it unmasks the mechanism of projection. Right, projection is when we're attributing our own unpleasant attributes and impulses onto someone else, usually denying that we have those. And so when the priest is there and he's confessing the sins of the people onto the head of that goat, what it's doing is it's, it's revealing that the issue is actually with the people and not with the scapegoat. Does that make sense? It's revealing the mechanism of the scapegoat and how it is used sociologically. The issue is actually not with the innocent. The issue is with us. And that, I think, is some of the genius, actually, of the Old Testament ritual. So why are we talking about the scapegoat on Palm Sunday as we head into Holy Week? You know, in John 12, we see Jesus on the top of the Mount of Olives, and he rides down into Jerusalem on a donkey. And he's going down there to celebrate the feast of the Passover, that's right, we, we celebrate Palm Sunday every year the week before Easter to commemorate this event. And as Jesus is riding, the people are gathering and they're placing their cloaks and they're placing palm branches down and they're waving palm branches and they're singing what? Hosanna. Hosanna means save. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the king of Israel. And it seems like Jesus is popular here. Like people are loving him. But Jesus is wise. He knows that there's more going on. In the very next scene, in that same chapter, just a few verses down, Jesus predicts his own death. He says, very truly I tell you, this is in John 12, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Now my soul is troubled. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No. It was for this very reason I came to this hour, so Father, glorify your name. 
So as Jesus rode his donkey into Jerusalem, he could sense the social dynamics. Right? It looked like he was popular, he was beloved by many, but he was also living in the center of an anxious and vulnerable political system. It was a system that he often spoke to and he addressed and he called out and he did it without holding back. And underneath the surface of his popularity, he knew that unrest was brewing. And he knew that by the end of the week, he was going to be scapegoated and he would be killed. The Roman Empire had control of Jerusalem. So you had Roman rulers, and then you had local Jewish rulers and religious leaders who were trying to maintain their own power and control while having to please the Roman overlords. Those of you who work in corporate America, you know that game well, right? <laughs> you always have to please the people above. But both the government and the religious establishments in Jerusalem were in chaos on the eve of Passover that year. You know, the Jews in Jerusalem and up in the Galilee where Jesus came from, they were prone to rioting against the Romans, especially around big holidays. And Jesus was the perfect person to be a scapegoat in that anxious system. He was different. He was a Jew in Roman-occupied Palestine. He was from the Galilee, which is like being from the boonies. It's like being from Pinckney. Just kidding, Robin Al. Alan <laughs> Robin. <laughs> he was rumored to be illegitimate. He wasn't married, which could have all kinds of implications in his culture at that time. He was a rabbi without credentials. He was calling out the schooled. He was different, and his followers were different. They were poor, they were unclean, they were women, they were tax collectors, they were other sinners. And this Jesus, he was stirring the people up and he was talking against the unjust power structures. Um, there's a, a really great Catholic theologian named Dr. Sandra Schneiders, whose name I cannot say five times real fast. And she says, if the people got out of order for any reason, Pilate, who was the representative of the Roman Empire, he would turn against the Jewish leadership whose job it was to keep the people pacified. And as Jews from all over, both domestic and foreign poured into the holy city for Passover. Both the empire and the temple were sitting on a social powder keg. It was a social powder keg. And as we've discussed, an effective way of keeping people from turning on each other is to find a common enemy. Right? It's to create a scapegoat. So I'm going to take a little aside here. Because in today's political climate, we're living in an anxious system ourselves. And I'm hearing scapegoating on both sides. I had Rachel read this part to make sure I don't go too far here. <laughs> Give me some grace. You know, some politicians are making scapegoats out of immigrants, Muslims, black people. Others are making scapegoats out of the 1%, out of bankers and the rich. You know, rich people and rulers can also be made scapegoats and frequently have throughout history. And I think if we're not careful, we can project our own human tendencies toward violence and toward greed onto others, right? Speaking as a white woman, we can be imagining that all Muslims are potentially violent or that all black people are potentially violent or that all immigrants are potentially violent while denying our own potential for violence. We can be imagining that those bankers and those Wall Street traders are greedy while we're selfless victims of their schemes while denying our own potential for greed. And it's not that all people being scapegoat are completely innocent, and it's not that illegal things should go unpunished, right? There, there's, a, there's a fine line 
between justice and protection and safety and, and making sure that we have um, fair economic systems and creating scapegoats. Right? And so what we need to have is some discernment and some wisdom as we evaluate the kind of language that we have and what we're actually saying. Because what we're doing is we can deny our shared humanity with them. And I can deny that given particular circumstances, I too could become violent. And I don't like that about myself. And I too am greedy in parts of my life. And I don't like that about myself. And my proclivities toward greed, they might be less than a Wall Street investor, but when we deny our common humanity with those people, it can give us license to do violence toward another. And oftentimes that violence is done without due process or real justice. And to me, that's the potential outcome if we're not aware and we're not careful. Rachel said, you didn't tell them who to vote for. I'm not, I don't care. <laughs> I'm not telling you who to vote for. Back to Jesus. So to quell the simmering violence that threatens to erupt in Jerusalem between the Romans and the Jews, Jesus is made into a scapegoat. And Pilate, the Roman ruler, he knew that Jesus was innocent. He says it three times in the Gospel of John. And Caiaphas, who was the Jewish high priest that year, he also knew Jesus was innocent. But he wanted him to die because he understood the power of the scapegoat to bring temporary social peace. And he says this, he says this right after Jesus had raised Lazarus from the dead. This is John chapter 11. Therefore, many of the Jews who had come to visit Mary and had seen what Jesus did, raising Lazarus from the dead, they believed in him. But many of them went to the Pharisees and they told them what Jesus has done. And the chief priests and the Pharisees, they called a meeting of the Sanhedrin. Like these are some of the rulers. And they said, what are we accomplishing? Here is this man and he's performing many signs. And if we let him go on like this, everyone's gonna believe in him. And then the Romans will come and they were going to take away both our temple and our nation, right? So this was what was at stake, the temple and the nation. It's an existential threat. And then one of them named Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, he spoke up and he said, you don't know anything at all. You don't realize it is better for you that one man die for the people than for the whole nation to perish. This is the scapegoating in effect, it's better that one man die than that all of us should perish. That's scapegoating thinking. And it says, so, so from that day on, they plotted to take his life. Caiaphas knew if they could accuse Jesus of trying to overthrow the Romans, of which they knew he was innocent, and of which many of them actually were guilty of wanting to do. If they could accuse Jesus of doing that, then they could rally enough people to believe that Jesus was the real issue and they could have him put to death to keep the peace. And this wasn't just the Jews. This was the Romans too, which is symbolic of everyone, Jew and Gentile. For many years, you know, the, the Jews have been made the scapegoats in this whole process. All of us were responsible for the system that put Jesus to death. And this is exactly what happened. They arrested him. They accused him falsely. They whipped together a mob that screamed for the death of a man against whom they hadn't even heard charges, right? This is less than a week after Jesus has ridden triumphantly into Jerusalem on a donkey with all of the crowds and many of these same people who were yelling, Hosanna, blessed is the king of Israel, were now shouting for his death. The scapegoat, Jesus, is then dressed like a fool, the false crown and a purple robe, and he's disfigured so that he doesn't look like them. 
The more different he appears, the easier it is to dehumanize him and kill him. He's not one of us. And indeed, he is killed. And after Jesus' scapegoat is killed in the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we see one of the Roman executioners saying that he knew Jesus was innocent. Right? It was like all of the gospel writers were wanting to underscore this. You don't understand. He's innocent. He was a son of God. And Jesus became like so many in this world a victim of scapegoating. But the thing about Jesus is that he's not like other victims. The thing about Jesus is he's not like other victims. The thing about Jesus is he doesn't stay sacrificed. He doesn't stay expelled. He doesn't stay expunged from the group. He doesn't even stay silent He truly died, but he truly rose from the dead. And we humans, we looked at an innocent man and we killed him because of our sin. And what happened was God overturned our verdict. We declared Jesus worthy of death for our sake. It was better that he die than all of us should perish. We declared him worthy of death and God declared us wrong. And when Jesus rose... He didn't come back with a vengeance on his mind, right? He didn't come back ready to kill us, but with forgiveness and peace so as not to perpetuate the violent system that humans create. And in all of this, God ultimately declared the scapegoat system illegitimate. He said, it doesn't work. The story of Jesus, it reveals the inadequacy of our human propensity to dehumanize people. I'll say that again, that had a lot of big words. The story of Jesus reveals the inadequacy of our human propensity to dehumanize people. And with the death and resurrection of his son, God has not only adopted and adapted the sacrificial system in scriptures, but he's declared it null and void. There are to be no more sacrifices, animal, human, or otherwise. He said, I I require mercy, not sacrifice. If you think about the lottery, that story, if Jesus had been the woman who was stoned in the lottery, she's in the middle of that circle, it'd be like after she was dead, she just stood up. She just stood up. It would just reveal the pointlessness of what they just did. Yeah, you can kill her, but that's not going to stop anything. It reveals the pointlessness of the villagers focusing their violence toward one person, and that's what Jesus' rising does. It reveals the pointlessness of a scapegoating. And this is God reinterpreting Scripture through Jesus. He he is reinterpreting the sacrificial system through his son Jesus, and he's reorienting our human tendencies away from our impulses to exclude and to do violence to others who are different. He's saying everyone is us. We are all sinners, right? We are all equal before the cross there, and we are all also called and asked and invited to be the beloved sons and daughters of the Most High King. Everyone is us. And part of following Jesus is being aware of our own tendencies to scapegoat others. And part of following Jesus is having our minds renewed by God's spirit so that we can see when scapegoating is in play. We can see it in our families. We have the wisdom to see it in our workplaces, in our communities, our churches, and in our country. And I just say, God, help us, because I know I'm guilty of it as well. Let's take a couple of minutes of silence. Um, in, these, in these two minutes, it's just, if, you're, if you want to and are willing to, um, let's just ask God to, to show you, one, if you've been a scapegoat, 
Or two, if you haven't been a scapegoat, but you know someone who has, or you see it happening to someone. And you just picture either yourself or that scapegoat, and you picture Jesus sitting next to you or in front of you, and just tell him what you've seen and how it's made you feel, and experience him in solidarity sitting there. Him saying, I've been a scapegoat too. And just so you know, like God is on the side of the accused. And he declared that the shame that you've been carrying, it's not real shame. And God doesn't see you that way. All right, so let's just take a couple of minutes. I'll, I'll kind of keep my eye on the time. So come, Holy Spirit, be in this space with us. I'll invite the ushers to come up and to receive the offering.